The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, Jackie, you know, I like to follow the news flow in terms of trends and the way the stories are shifting. And I think that the whole COVID-19 story has taken a bit of a backseat over the last week with the COP26, the big UN climate change conference in Glasgow, Scotland, as well as the inflation story that just keeps coming up in the headlines almost on a daily basis, whether it's food, whether it's energy, whether it's all sorts of other things that are being impeded by supply chain issues. Inflation's a big story, and so is COP26. So I think we're going to talk about both of those today. Do you want to start with the COP26, and then we'll move on to oil and gas prices? Yeah, we'll focus on the oil and gas inflation, but let's talk about COP26. There's just a tsunami of news, so kind of give you an overview of what we've learned and and where we are after about one week of the conference. But just in terms of background, the uh, United Nations organizes this. It's the 26th meeting. These started back in 1995, and representatives around the world come. And the United Nations organizes this and facilitates countries to agree on how to make progress on climate change. And of course, there's been many meetings, 26 to be exact. 2015 was a very important year because that was the year that was called a breakthrough because 190 parties adopted to limit warming to below 2 degrees C and preferably 1.5 degrees C. Yeah, it's definitely been headed towards the 1.5 degrees C. I don't really hear a lot of people talking about 2 degrees C anymore. But the difference between 2 degrees C and 1.5 degrees C in terms of what needs to be done is just immense. But we'll get to that. It is. And the goalpost has shifted. It really did shift in 2018 with that new IPCC report that said 2 degrees is not good enough. You need to get to 1.5. And that's why this meeting, which is a year delayed, really, it was supposed to happen five years after the Paris Agreement, but it's happening six years after, is to really put pressure on countries to get much more aggressive in their goals to reduce their emissions, to get closer to that 1.5. But the interesting thing is, even though Paris has talked about as a success, in reality, it really hasn't been. Overall, global emissions have continued to grow since then. There was a slight tick down for the pandemic, but it looks like it's snapping back here this year. In fact, maybe even higher than 2019 because of all the coal that's being used this year. Yeah, I think it's going to assuredly be higher than 2019 because of the coal, because of the snapback in energy demand, and also because of the uh, we're sort of regressed to inefficient ways of consumption as well, like less public transit, more congested freeways in terms of people take individual transport. When the numbers get tallied up for 2021, I think the emissions are going to be even higher than they were pre-pandemic. And things like you're hearing, um, because cargoes are so expensive and so slow, people are flying materials that would have been put on ship before. So that doesn't sound like that's going to be good for emissions. Now, the other thing that has happened is because of this lack of actually doing anything, there's been a rise up of groups, whether it be investors that are pressuring emitters to make commitments because they're kind of giving up on these global pledges. Countries say they do these things, but nothing ever happens. And of course, there's been the rise up of the students led by Greta Thunberg. And I don't know if you saw some of the protests. Today is Friday in the streets of Glasgow. Looks like they have a huge turnout. I understand that's going to happen around the world over the next few days. Yeah, no, this is a full two weeks of climate change activism, basically, at the highest level all the way down. And we're also seeing, uh, of course, sort of rich and famous activists, I'll call them, 
not take to the streets, but take to the private jet runways as well. Yeah, and that's interesting. So COP is not just a boring meeting for bureaucratic government officials and climate wonks. The rich and famous show up too. In fact, there's a really interesting article published in the Financial Times by Morgan Brazilian, energy commentary and expert. We actually had him in our 2019 um, conference up here in Calgary. And he had titled this article, Make COP Boring Again. And he argues that all of the pomp and ceremony, all the celebrities and royalty are turning this meeting into a bit of theater and getting away from the real work of getting the job done and negotiating the climate agreement. The whole thing is a little bit of a festival, a circus. There's lots of slogans, PR lines from every single dimension as it hits the headlines. And, you know, I'm not trying to diminish the type of work they're trying to get done and the difficulties of these kind of negotiations. But to be honest with you, I think some of the carnival type atmosphere that we're seeing is actually unhelpful to actually getting things done. I don't know how you overcome that because it is a global event. But I really do agree with Morgan, and that's a great article that we can even post the link to. Yeah, we can. And there's some great pics from the cocktail parties, like a picture with Justin Trudeau talking to William and Kate and Charles royalty mm. with Bill Gates in the background. But of course, people want to go to these parties, and maybe that detracts from pounding out the hard compromises that need to be made in order to negotiate these global agreements. One would think that they would try and avoid those sorts of photo ops because it just doesn't send the right message when everybody is being told to cut back and change lifestyles. Meanwhile, you see that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I would think their handlers should be a little bit more sensitive to trying to avoid those sorts of photo ops, but that's what it is. And there's no masks to be seen either, by the way, Peter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and UK is actually concerned about a bit of a spike in COVID cases right now. Well, yeah, they are. I was there in September and uh, it was like the best summer ever. I could sort of quote what we saw here in Alberta. And now they're starting to see a rise in cases. We'll see where it goes. Let's switch to what the goals are of COP this year. What are the main things that are trying to get accomplished over this two-week event? Yeah, well, I think they're trying to get the world to agree to a whole bunch of issues. Methane's right at the top of the list, and there are some announcements on reducing methane. And I think that's a good starting point because mitigating methane emissions is actually one of the lower cost things you can do. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It's 25 to 30 times more potent in terms of acting as a greenhouse agent, I'll call it, for heating the planet than CO2. And it actually has a much bigger impact in the short term. It actually disintegrates you know, much faster than CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Now, the agreement that was made by 90 countries, so that was one of the big already achievements announced, is that they would make a 30% reduction by 2030 from 2020 levels. Now, Canada, the Liberals already committed in the last election to make 75% reduction by 2030. So I think more or less we were there in that agreement. I don't know that it changes anything over what we were already expecting, but it is great to see sort of that level of agreement. Now, you could be cynical and say, why only 30%? This is the lowest hanging fruit in general. Like these are some of the cheapest, easiest emissions and have the biggest impact on warming. So some are saying, you know, it's not aggressive enough, but to get a pack with 90 countries is a pretty big accomplishment. It is a pretty big accomplishment, and we'll see how it manifests itself on the ground in terms of mitigating these sorts of emissions. Canada is not really one of the bigger problems when it comes to methane. We've got a lot of countries that are just venting methane, especially big oil-producing countries on the other side of the planet. And even if they combust it, it's better 
than actually letting the methane go into the atmosphere because uncombusted, the methane acts as, as I said, a very potent greenhouse gas. So by burning it and turning it into CO2, it's actually better. But ultimately, that's not desirable either. Ultimately, it's preventing it from leaking out of the pipes, preventing it from leaking out of the storage tanks and all the other infrastructure. And I will say one correction. It wasn't clear to me that this was just only oil and gas emissions. So the liberal election platform was specific to oil and gas, where this appears to be the broader economy. And there's a lot of methane in the agricultural sector, for instance. So it'll be interesting. I think the scope of here is much broader than what was talked about before. Yeah, I don't know. Did you see any headlines or anything in terms of the reaction of the agricultural communities, either here in the US or beyond? I, I haven't really seen or heard much. No, I haven't. From what I read, it wasn't so clear. It just talked about methane in general, but I have to imagine it's all sources of methane. They're all contributing to the warming. Yeah, I mean, to this point, it's all been about oil and gas and oil and gas because it's sort of the lightning rod for all and anything to do with emissions. But certainly in this country, it's 26% of the emissions. But that also tells me 74% of the emissions come from other places, including methane in agriculture and other sources. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of high-level statements being made at a conference like this. The real challenge is to see how it actually gets accomplished on the ground. And it gets complicated very quickly in terms of who's going to pay for it, how does it affect the competitiveness of our agriculture versus other agricultural suppliers, food suppliers, etc. So we'll see. Now, the top goal of this conference is to get countries to secure a net zero by 2050 future. And mm. as I said before, the Paris Agreement is not enough to accomplish that net zero 2050. And this was the goal running into the event. However, it does seem like this might not happen. China, the world's largest emitter, President Xi did not show to the meeting. U.S. President Biden showed up, but he doesn't have that multi-trillion dollar bill done yet that would deliver on that. And Overall, I think the energy crisis and the high energy prices might be dampening the level of ambition here for countries to step up. So we'll see. Yeah, and Vladimir Putin didn't show up either. And of course, they're the largest oil and gas producers in the world. So yeah, it's far from a comprehensive set of agreements. And net zero by 2050 is a very audacious goal. We know India came out, they're a big coal burner and said, well, maybe we can do it by 2070. So, you know, progress is being made, but um, a lot of the high-level direction is still lacking, in my opinion. Well, and just to put it in context, this has maybe surprised some of our listeners, the top three emitters in the world are China, the USA, and India, and altogether, they're 45% of all emissions. So if you can't get these folks to agree to big cuts, it's very difficult to sort of see the other countries come along. Let's talk about finance. So there was a lot of the announcements over the last couple of days, Mark Carney is a real leader here in terms of leading the financial institutions towards contributing to reducing emissions. And the two kind of major things that were announced in the last couple of days, one is this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, where $130 trillion of private capital is committed to transforming the economy to net zero, including achieving 50% reduction in this decade. You know, if you look at that net zero, it's not just about getting to net zero by 2050. It's about a 50% reduction by 2030. These groups are doing that. And there's 450 firms across 45 countries, including Canada's largest banks, have all signed up to this. 
Well, yeah, this is a bigger deal, to be honest with you. It didn't take up full center stage amidst everything else that's going on in COP. But I would say that whereas people are looking to government to influence policy and take us to net zero, I would say, and have said on this program before, that the financial industry is what to watch. And so we are seeing major, I'll call them policy, effectively de facto policies that are being instituted behind the scenes by the financial alliance for net zero, which is really an umbrella for a whole bunch of other initiatives that are going on that seek to alter the way companies invest their capital. It's a huge area, and we're going to have to devote at least one, if not two, podcasts just to this, because in my mind, what's going on behind the scenes with the financial industry and how it's going to translate to financial regulators and accounting and all sorts of other parties that influence business, this is what business needs to be watching. And it's not only oil and gas, because what's happening here is going to be consequential to all sorts of corporations that emit and spend capital on new clean and green infrastructure, but also have the challenge of retiring the old. So I'm listening to the politicians and so on. My ear is more tuned to this space right here, the financial stuff. And we may include a link to this in the show notes, but this group recognizes that a lot more has to happen to mobilize all this capital. I think they have a goal of something like $100 trillion over the next three decades. And so they've put out a document called the Private Finance Hub Strategy with 24 major initiatives to mobilize more capital. And it includes way more reporting, both the Task Force for Climate Disclosure, as well as loads of other things that companies need to do so that these financiers can pick out who are those companies that they want to support. There's things yeah. like risk management, like they're going to start doing climate stress tests. Remember how there used to be the financial stress tests after the financial crisis? They want much more credible ways to assess net zero plans. So up until now, companies have put together a story about why they'd be a going concern in a low carbon world, but there's really been no way to sort of assess if that's an A plus or a C. So they want to put in some way to assess this. They also recognize that we need way more projects to invest in. In fact, BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, said deploying the capital that they're committing, this $100 trillion, is going to be far harder than securing the commitments. Like trying to find enough places to put that kind of capital in the clean energy is going to be a challenge. Yeah, that's a huge area. So by the way, Jack, I think you know we have a lot of corporate leaders that listen in on this program. And I've been talking to a lot of the corporate leaders over the past couple months individually. And I asked them if they've read any of these reports that have been published over the course of the last year in the lead up to COP26, culminating in this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero report. And the answer is no. And if you're listening to this program and you're involved in any sort of corporate planning, corporate leadership, you need to read these documents. Because as I said, these documents are effectively policy type documents that are not government policy, but they have far more impact to business, I believe, than some of the government policies and high level stuff that's coming out of the halls of Glasgow. That's a good point. And we'll put the link in. So those that are listening, we'll, we'll have easy access to them. But this whole area of reporting, it's very messy right now. There's a lot of different things going on, but I do think over the next three to four years, it's going to be a lot more clear what companies need to report on. And those that aren't are going to uh, have a harder time attracting capital. Yeah, well, it's messy in a sense that it 
opens up a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions about it. And I think that there are some things that we need to absorb challenge in, in some ways, because you know I can potentially see a lot of unintended consequences that are coming out of this if we're not careful in terms of how this stuff is implemented. So you know, people need to read this, understand it, and think about all the implications and potentially, in the worst case, unintended consequences that are negative all the way from energy security to capital flows, divestment, et cetera, et cetera. So we will be talking more about it. It's a very large subject. Okay, let's talk about another major goal is to complete the Paris rule book, which the cynic in me says, wow, it's been six years and you're still haven't figured out the rule book. And we think in the next eight years, we're going to reduce global emissions by 50%, you know, when we can't even get this bureaucratic rule book done in six years. But there are two major pushes. One is rich countries need to commit more to poor nations. So back 12 years ago, there was a pledge that rich nations would give money to poor nations to the tune of $100 billion per year to help them reduce their emissions, but also help them adapt to climate change. And of course, this promise has not been lived up to. These countries have not gotten the funding, and there's a big push to make that happen. The thinking being, you know, all the rich countries, they were able to admit CO2 and have cheap energy to grow their economies. And now we're saying for the developing nations today, you're not allowed to do that. You need higher cost, cleaner energy. And so there's an onus for the developed countries to help the poorer countries. So that's going to be a big discussion. I'm a little skeptical on this one, especially now after COVID. Many of the rich countries have taken on a lot of debt. And I just wonder if there is appetite to meet these types of commitments. Yeah, I don't know if there's appetite either. You know, And there's a whole inflation story. I already mentioned at the front end of the podcast, the inflation story is going to also dictate how things are going. You know, I read a story, for example, just yesterday, and we've had a podcast on things like lithium prices and battery prices. And it's finally trickled through the supply chain now that battery prices are going up substantially. So, you know, these are considerations in terms of that $100 billion that's been promised. That's not an inflation adjusted number. All right, let's just quickly talk about other specific messages from the Canadian Prime Minister that might be interesting. It's made a lot of news in Canada this week, this cap on oil and gas emissions and future requirements for reductions. It's still not clear to me what this cap includes. I did hear some CBC reporting that talked about the fact it could include all oil and gas, so that would include LNG and may even include refining and petrochemicals. So I think it's all to be determined. But the big question is, how is this going to happen? How is it going to be administered? How is it going to be regulated? My view is, well, we already had that Bill C-12 that passed at the end of 2020 that basically required five-year reductions by sector. So, you know, my thinking is, I, I guess there wasn't really a cap, but if your goal is to reduce every five years, mm-hmm. you know, it implies you're not going up. So I'm not sure if it's a huge change, but I guess there's just a lot of confusion around it. There's a lot of confusion and ambiguity You're absolutely right. Like when they say oil and gas industry, what does that mean? It's just a huge spectrum, both geographically, it's a huge spectrum in terms of upstream, midstream, downstream, the dimensions in terms of manufacturers of equipment, operators. Does it include pipelines? Does it not include pipelines? I don't know. So when you think about controlling emissions, that's issue number one. Issue number two is measurement. If it includes all players in the oil and gas industry, a lot of the companies don't have accurate measurements. So basically, a lot of the estimates are that. There are estimates. They're just high-level formulations of what we think the industry is emitting, not what the industry actually is emitting. So if you want to actually 
be assured that, that reductions are being made or that a cap is being adhered to, you need to have accurate measurement. And we don't even have that yet. And then finally, I think that uh, the goals that are being set out are very lofty, very difficult to achieve. So that necessarily means probably that achieving these sorts of targets is going to take buying of credits. And as you know, the credit markets are not all that well established, either carbon credits and the lack of credits, given the volume that would be needed, means you could probably drive up the price of credits. And then when other industries are looking to buy those credits because they can't meet their targets either, they're going to have to be paying a lot more. So, I mean, I think the whole system is not yet prepared to do at a high level what is being asked to do. And actually, I'll add one more thing. If company A spends a lot of money reducing their emissions, does that mean company B, who didn't spend a lot of money, can actually fill in the gap up to the cap? Like we don't understand the competitive dynamics either. This is a very complicated thing to put like an industrial cap on thing because you know you got to understand that industries have competitive participants and we have to consider the business dynamics of what this means. So anyway, I could go on and on and I know we're going to talk about this more. I'll put one more wrinkle on it. You know, when you're talking about the credits and everything, we don't have a Canadian-wide credit system. Every province has their own deal. So that's even going to complicate it more. So yeah. definitely a lot of complexities. Well, let's quickly talk about energy inflation and uh, what a difference a year can make. Oil prices near $81 right now and natural gas prices $550 at Henry Hub, almost double what they were a year ago today. And the oil market has really tightened up. There's been a number of things that have contributed to that. So a few months ago, maybe three months ago, people probably didn't expect we would be sitting here above $80 for WTI. However, things like the very low inventories, which were made worse by Hurricane Ida, which shut in a bunch of production. Concerns now that OPEC spare capacity may be lower than advertised. As a group, they have not been able to meet their 400,000 barrel a day gain in a couple of the most recent months. And that's because some countries haven't been able to sort of meet their goal of increasing. Of course, we've had this natural gas situation, which has created some upside demand for oil as people are starting to use oil for power generation because gas prices are so high. And of course, OPEC plus continuing to stick with the plan, even though the market has tightened up a lot, to limit their increase to only 400,000 barrels a day each month of additional supply. Now, there's been pressure for them, for example, at this G20 meeting that preceded COP, the U.S. was putting a lot of pressure for all those producers that have spare capacity to add that back to the market, but that didn't work. We found out on Thursday that OPEC isn't planning uh, any different amount of supply. They'd say this situation here is more of a gas problem, and they're concerned about demand still. Yeah, I mean, it's just the interplay between the various fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, oil, and then the fact that the geopolitics are laid over top of that, both especially the natural gas and the oil, means that we've lost control. You know, we have lost control of the still dominant sources of energy in the world. We are a long way from actually transitioning. And we have, through a sequence of events and other issues, we've ceded control of the pricing of these commodities back to for example, OPEC plus and other dynamics in the world. Yeah. And they're saying, well, as long as the U.S. doesn't grow, you know, we're fine with the high oil prices. That suits us just fine. They're not so concerned about Joe Biden saying that, you know, he's worried that this is going to slow the economy at this point. Now, there are some things over the next three, four months that could help alleviate the situation. 
One is if we have a warmer winter and uh, the demand for all commodities, including oil, is reduced that way. There's new reporting just yesterday that there are some early signposts that U.S. producers may grow in next year. So, for example, BP, Chevron, and Exxon are all planning to increase their output of shale, or at least their spending of shale in the next year. That was just announced in the last week or so. So that's a little bit of a signpost. We might see some supply growth, and we do actually need supply growth from the U.S. next year to keep the market well supplied, if you take the uh, assumptions around demand growth. They're upping their budgets, but we're also hearing that there is just rampant inflation in the oil fields. You know, you can't find labor, you can't find services, the cost of steel is going up, the cost of this, that, and the other are going up. So if you're going to spend a dollar just to offset your production declines last year, you know, I'm hearing like it's like 20, 30% inflation potentially here. So if Chevron and Exxon up their budgets from $100 to $130, actually, the production is still staying flat. You know, we really have to start thinking about how to factor the inflationary forces into this sorts of things. Now, I have no doubt they're seeking to increase their production a bit, but I get back to some comments I think we made on one of the previous podcasts that we had recently is that, again, actually, we've also lost control in many ways of these companies because of the shareholder base turnover. The base of shareholders in oil companies, independent oil companies, has shifted from big pension plans and big institutional funds to retail, to hedge funds, to mutual funds, which ultimately are still retail dominated. And so their interest is in just dividends and share buybacks. That's it. They're not interested in growing production. They're just interested in maximizing how much percentage return they get for putting a dollar of money into the shares. So I think we'll see a bit of a response of shale production, but I don't think we're going to see anything like we've seen in the past. You're skeptical. Now, the other thing that could help a little bit is these Iran sanctions are lifted, and that's just a yo-yo. You know, it's like one day it's on, one day it's off. Very hard to predict, but that would add some additional supply potentially in 2022 as well. Okay, so, you know, natural gas markets here in North America continue to be high, and I think the biggest concern is if we get that cold weather this winter that we could see very high prices here because we may need to stop some of those LNG exports leaving North America in that case. So to wrap it all up, it seems the weather is pretty important, also hard to predict, but I did look up the Farmer's Almanac, Peter, just so I could kind of know what's going to happen. But unfortunately, it gave me not much certainty. It called it a flip-flop winter. Up, down, up, down, roller coaster is how they described it. So that still doesn't tell me if it's going to be warm or cold. I mean, it's going to be a little bit of warm and a little bit of cold. So I couldn't really get much direction from there. So I think the next three to four months will be very interesting. And uh, weather, one of the hardest things to predict, is going to be a big part of that. Yeah, but if we do have that volatile weather where you have cold snap, followed by warm, followed by cold snap, potentially polar vortex, who knows, like we've had in the past couple of years, those cold episodes are going to be amplified in the natural gas markets, which will then spill over into the oil market. So I think we're going to see volatility based on that farmer's almanac prediction. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that is going to cause a lot of concerns amongst policymakers and governments, because ultimately it does trickle down into the pocketbook of the consumer. Yes, it does. So we'll be following all this over the next few months. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining this podcast. We're going to wrap it up. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.